Our Father and our God, we thank you for the beautiful day that we have today, the sunshine, the nice weather that we have that allows us to to get out of our houses and to come together to your house to study your word. Lord, I pray that our time this morning would be productive, that you would work in us a deeper knowledge of your word, that it would be spoken in truth, and that you would prepare us through this to worship you this morning and to live lives that are honoring to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3 as we're getting started this morning. We're, of course, continuing our series. We only have a few weeks left, actually, as I map it out in Colossians. We're approaching the end of chapter 3, and chapter 4 is uh, a little on the shorter side. So we are approaching um, the climax, if you will, of of our Colossians series. Our text for this morning is going to be from chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And just like last week, we've got three points again, so it outlines really well into a lesson, which always makes me happy. All right, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, If you'll remember from last week, Our three-point outline of Colossians, you remember we have Paul's sort of introduction and his describing the purpose of the letter. Then he goes into the doctrine of Jesus, the person and work of Christ, the gospel, and that sort of thing. And then we arrived in the third section, which is the section we're in now, which is the Christian living section. This is where Paul is teaching the Colossians how to live for Christ in light of the fact that they've been redeemed by him. Okay, so this is teaching Christians how to live. This is very applicable for us because I assume we are all Christians here and we want to learn to live like Christians. And last week, we had seen Paul dealing with Christian living from a negative perspective. Not not negative as in bad, but negative as in the sin aspect. That is the mortification of sin. We learned about that last week. Paul teaches that we need to kill the sin in our lives. We need to study the law of God in order to understand what it is that God wants us to do as his people. And then we search our lives for areas that we're not in accordance with it, and then we kill that sin. We get rid of it. We mortify it. We treat that sin like a ruthless enemy that needs to be terminated. Okay, That was sort of the thrust of what Paul was getting at last week, the mortification of sin, the dealing with sin, the negative side of the Christian uh, faith. But now in our text today, Paul is going to move into more of a positive aspect of the Christian life. That is not, not simply putting sin to death, 
but also then positively living a life that is pursuing holiness. And so that's kind of the first point today, if, if I want to call it that. It's the pursuit of holiness. The pursuit of holiness. And so that's what Paul's getting into here in verse 12. So let's look at what he's doing here. And then we'll see what the other two points are as we go along. So verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. These characteristics that Paul is listing for us here, these are characteristics of a godly person. These are characteristics of someone pursuing holiness, pursuing godliness. And notice what he what he's saying here right at the beginning of verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. As God's chosen ones. In in the Greek, I know you guys don't know Greek, but I'm going to talk about it just a little bit here. In the Greek, the word that shows up there for chosen ones is the word, let's see where do I want to write this, I'll write it up here, is the Greek word eklektos, okay? And what's really interesting is that this, this word goes into Latin and then comes into English as the English word elect, okay? And what the word elect means in the Greek, Latin, or in the English is it means to pick out, to pull out, to choose. That's where we get the word choose. In fact, the, the Greek word here, lektos, and the Latin word lectum means to read. Because what you're doing when you're reading is you're picking out the letters. And so for our English word elect, it means to pick out. That's why it's translated as chosen here. And so when you think about the, etym- the etymology of this word, eklektos, and you see it showing up here as chosen, think about how picturesque that is. Put on then as the ones whom God has picked out, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, we are not living holy lives. We do not pursue holy lives as Christians. We do not seek to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and all these things in order that God might say, oh, look at that. Look at how good Levi's doing at that. Let's pull him out of the fire. We don't do these things so that God will choose us. We don't pursue holy lives so that God will choose us. No, we pursue holy lives, Paul says here, because we are already God's chosen people. We pursue holy lives because we have already been plucked from the fire. We have already been picked out. See, this this here is really important to emphasize as we get started here. We as Christians pursue holy lives because we are saved, not in order so that we might be saved. I've been saying this over and over again, but you see here Paul already making this very clear. As God's chosen ones who have already been chosen, you're already holy, you're already beloved. Now pursue lives in accordance with your status before God. Put on then as people who have already been chosen by God, already been elected, pulled out of the fire. Holy and beloved, put on compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and forgive one another. These are marks of holiness. That's what Paul is calling us to here. That's what the whole scripture is calling us to. 
Okay, verse 14. And above all these. And so he's listed a whole bunch of things that holy people do, things we need to pursue. And I'd love to spend time talking about humility and meekness and so on, but we, we don't have time to do that. So you'd probably have to take a week for each one of those things. But he lists all these things, and then he says, above this, above all, most importantly, verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all these things. So more important than meekness, more important than patience, more important than any of these things he's listed, here's love. And what I've found, and not just in this passage, but also in, say, 1 Corinthians 13 and other places, for Paul, he very much loves to say things like, love is supreme in the Christian life. So one thing that we could say, I think, on the basis of studying Paul, is that for Paul, the dominant characteristic of the Christian life is this thing that he calls love. That's the dominant characteristic. In fact, if you looked at 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. It says, this is Paul speaking, he says, So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. So Paul here, he, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he lists faith, hope, and love as, his, as these three, if we want to call them, theological virtues. Now, these were very popular in the medieval church. These were very important in the medieval church, faith, hope, and love. These are classically called the three theological virtues. And what's interesting is Paul lists these out, and he says, hey, faith, hope, and love, these things are important, these things are good, they abide. But the greatest of these three things is love. Now, I don't know about you, but if Paul hadn't said that in 1 Corinthians 13, which one of these do you think I would choose as the most important? Faith. Right, yeah, right. We'd be good Protestants at this point, right? Good Reformed people. Faith. Because in the Protestant world, we emphasize faith. Faith, faith, faith. Why? Because it's really important. Right? It's all over the New Testament. Faith is the instrumental cause of our justification. Right? It is how we are justified. We're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? Classic gospel formulation of the scriptures. Faith is really important. Faith in Christ. We're justified by that. So if Paul hadn't said in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the greatest, I would have chosen faith. It's kind of interesting. I'm glad Paul said this, because I'd be wrong if he didn't say this. I think other people might choose hope. Some people might choose hope as the greatest of these three things. The hope of glory. The hope of being in heaven with Jesus one day. The hope of, of our salvation fully and finally given to us in the new heavens and the new earth. And some people might say, oh, hope is the greatest of those things. That's what I value the most. But Paul says, no, he says, faith is important, hope is important, but love, this is the most important. Now, why does Paul say that love is the most important in 1 Corinthians? Why does he say that love is the most important here in Colossians 3? What's the reason for that? Okay, for God's love? So because God loves us, then we love God? Is that what you're thinking? He loved us before we loved him. 
He loved us before we loved him. Yeah, absolutely. So love precedes us. Anyone else have any ideas? Why would love be greater than faith and hope in Paul's mind for the Christian life? You want to take care of those people you love. Okay. Yep. Ever thought about this before? Did you even know that Paul put love as the top Christian virtue? Yeah, I think well, I think you probably heard this verse before. Trying to see what you're going. <laughs> I see that. I know where I'm going. I just want to hear what you guys have to say a little bit. Well, when you identify faith and hope, they would necessarily be below love, because he first loved us, and he gives us the gift of faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so you say love is the start. We're still anchored in his love for the future, but yet we're hoping for the future to come. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think if you said it like that, then you kind of doubt it. <laughs> we don't doubt it. No, we don't doubt it, but we don't have it. Right? We're looking forward to it. That's where the hope comes wish, in. Kind of wishing. Yeah, right. Not wishing. Exciting and looking forward. That's right, desiring it, that's what you mean by wish. Well, the second phrase says that love basically is the glue that holds everything else together. Okay. It's the, the binding agent. Yeah, the, what does he say, perfect harmony or something? Um, yes. uh, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Yeah, that's right. Love holds everything together. Here's I'll, I'll tell you what the, um, the greatest theologian in the history of the Christian church had to say about this very question. All right. Who's the greatest theologian in the history of the church? Anyone? Want to Matthew take a Henry. Matthew Henry. <laughs> He's a good guy, but not quite. Okay, Jesus. Yeah, aside from Jesus and the apostles who were inerrant teachers. Starts with an A. <laughs> no. New Testament. I mean, not in the New Testament, but in the New Covenant era. Oh, there we go. That's right. Oh, Augustine. That's right. Uh, well, Augustine, or what really intellectual people say, Augustine. I like to say Augustine, so I sound really intellectual. That's very true, but it's Latin, so it's going to break the rules here and there. Anyway, Augustine is considered to be the greatest theologian in the history of Christianity. Um, may I mean? Some people say, no, it was Martin Luther, or no, it was John Calvin. Or, I think it was Augustine, honestly. But anyway, Augustine was a brilliant thinker. He, he, he thought long and hard about these kinds of questions. And he actually wrote a whole treatise on faith, hope, and love, which I read, and it was very good. But one of the books that I studied very carefully of Augustine's when I was in college was his book that he um, entitled On Christian Teaching. And essentially what this book was, is it was a manual for pastors and teachers on how to read the Bible and then how to explain the Bible to other people. And in my undergrad, I was uh, studying Latin, and in our Latin 3 class, when we finished all of our grammar and all of our vocabulary and all this stuff, our professor, who loved to push us really hard and drive us nuts sometimes, decided it would be a good idea for us to spend the whole semester translating this whole book from English into Latin. Or, I mean, sorry, from Latin into English. And uh, that, was, 
That was about eight hours of homework every week, just translating sentence after sentence. It was a, a lot of work, but I'm glad I did it because not only did I you know, learn the Latin language better through that, but also you know, reading a book is one thing. You can remember a few things from reading a book, but when you translate a book, man, you really get to know that book. And Augustine's book on Christian teaching deals with this question of faith, hope, and love. And Augustine references 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where Paul says that love is the greatest of these three virtues. And Augustine asks the question, why is love the greatest? Why does Paul say this? Why should this matter for us as Christians? Why should we care that Paul says that love is the greatest? And here's what Augustine said. I went back and read this yesterday just to make sure I wasn't um, getting it wrong. But what Augustine said was this. He said, faith is essential for the Christian life here on earth, right? We have to have faith in Christ. But as Hebrews 11 says, right, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so while we're here on this earth, you know, we don't see Christ. We love him, yet we don't see him, as Paul says. We are not in heaven yet. We have not received our glorified bodies we, we're not in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? So we have to have faith that those things will come to us. We have to have faith that we're going to see Christ. We have to have hope that we're going to see him. We don't have those things yet in their fullest sense. Right? We have them in the already sense, but not in the not yet sense. And so faith and hope are virtues that Christians need while here in this earthly life. But... When we arrive in glory, we won't need faith and hope because we will have the assurance of things that are seen and the conviction of things that are seen. You see that? The faith and hope are temporary. They are for this earthly life. But when we come into heaven, we won't have to have a faith that Jesus is there or we won't have to have a hope for glory. We'll actually have those things. But when we reach heaven, love is something we need there. It's not just something that we have here. Love is perpetual. Love remains forever. And so part of what part of the reason why Paul emphasizes love as being central to the Christian life today is because we are practicing what we are going to be doing for the rest of eternity. That is living in love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see what Augustine's getting at there? Love is perpetual. Love goes on forever. God will always love us. We will always love God. It's only in this earthly life when we see through a mirror dimly that we need faith and hope. Those things will be fulfilled when we enter our state of glory. And that's why Paul's emphasizing here, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We are practicing what we will be doing for the rest of eternity. Well, in Corinthians, knowing Galatians, he lists love as the first and the fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. That's right. That's how important it is to him. That's how important it is to the Christian life. Okay, does that make sense? Why Paul's putting this one on a pedestal? Again, this is not to downplay faith and hope. All right, I'm a fire-breathing Presbyterian 
Reformed Protestant. I'm all about faith and justification by faith alone and all that, but we recognize that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Once we have those things hoped for, once we have those things that really are seen in the beatific vision, in heaven, in glory, we don't need those because they've been fulfilled. Okay? So above all these, put on love. Now, what exactly that means to put on love, what exactly love looks like, I mean, that's going to be something that's very much, you know, very subjective and based on, you know, what relationships we find ourselves in and all that kind of thing. So we've got to think carefully about how that applies. Okay, verse 15, other thing that Paul wants to stress here. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Again, just talking about the Greek for a second, the Greek word here for peace is the equivalent of the Hebrew word. Now this is fun. I like writing Hebrew on the board because it looks really weird. The equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. Have you heard of the word shalom before? Yeah, I don't think so. Oops. What does shalom mean? Peace. Yeah, that's right, peace. Yeah, this is actually a greeting if you go to Israel, though, uh, unless it's the morning. In the morning, they'll say boker tov, which is good morning. But in the, the rest of the day, they'll say shalom, like peace to you, you know, peace be with you, or something like that. And uh, shalom is a very important theological term in the Old Testament. Peace, very important in the Old Testament, particularly when it comes to prophecies of the end times. Because um, in the Old Testament, particularly I'm thinking of the book of Zechariah. I've been reading through Zechariah a lot uh, in my Hebrew Bible, trying to get a good grasp on that book, because I'm thinking of perhaps doing a, you know, a teaching series or a sermon series or something on that book at some point in the future. <clears throat> and in Zechariah, shalom is an important aspect of the coming Messiah. That is, that the Messiah, this king, Zechariah 9, says that this king is going to come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Hmm, wonder who that person was. And he comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's this righteous king, and he's going to bring shalom to all the nations of God's people. That's what Jesus is prophesied to do. He's going to bring shalom. He's going to bring peace. That's the kind of peace Paul's talking about here. And this peace, <clears throat> what exactly is this? This peace has an already and a not yet aspect to it, right? Just like all of these prophecies about the new covenant. There's an already and a not yet. In the not yet aspect, this shalom is going, this peace is going to be the new heavens and the new earth, right? Our state of glory, our state of perfection, our state of perfect peace and fellowship with God Almighty and with Christ in the new creation. Okay? That's, that's the perfect fulfillment of shalom, perfect fulfillment of peace. But in the already aspect of peace, we Christians have this shalom. And this is what you, I guess you could call a spiritual shalom, a spiritual peace. And that's the peace that Paul's talking about here. This is the peace that we as believers ought to feel toward God. It's the peace of being reconciled to God. 
the peace of being guilty sinners worthy of hell who are now reconciled to a holy God by being covered with the righteousness of Christ. He has made peace between us and God. That was Christ's work. And this peace, Paul tells us, this peace of Christ needs to rule in our hearts. And what he means by that is that this peace needs to be the governing principle of how we operate. And it needs to provide assurance for us of our salvation. That's what this peace does. There is peace between God and man because of the work of Christ. And this provides assurance for us in our salvation, assurance that our hope that our hope isn't something isn't something fake. Our hope that God didn't lie to us or that Jesus didn't lie to us. But a real hope. A real hope that is a result of this peace of Christ ruling in us. And then in um, <clears throat> verse 16. So first of all, sorry, in verses 12 through 15 we have this pursuit of holiness. Characteristic of the Christian life. Pursuit of holiness. Put on kindness and humility and meekness. Forgiving one another. All, above all these, love. And let the peace of Christ rule in you. These are characteristics of holy people. These are characteristics of Christians. This is what we should be pursuing. If we're lacking these, if we're lacking the peace of Christ, the assurance of our salvation, if we're lacking love for God or for one another, if we're lacking patience or meekness or kindness, these are the things we need to be praying for and asking the Spirit to give to us. Now I have, myself, a lot of patience for some things. Maybe you do too. But I have a lack of patience in other things. And lately, I've been praying for patience in those things that I don't have patience for. Because I need the Spirit to fix my heart, to make me more like the Christian that Paul is describing here, to pursue this. It's an ongoing struggle, an ongoing process. We always need to be um, giving ourselves maintenance by asking the Spirit to come and help us. Okay? what Paul's calling us to do here. So that's the first thing, pursuing holiness. <clears throat> Verse 16 is Paul's second point here. This is also a mark of, of what Christians ought to do positively as they seek to be um, godly people. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So his second point, just erase this here. His second point The second point is the word. What are Christians to do? They're to be holy people, of course, as we talked about. And then he lists all these things they're to do. And then verse 16, what else are Christians to do? We're to be people of the book, if you will. Right? We're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And Paul gives some practical advice <clears throat> for how we are to do this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So one way Paul says that, that we get the word of Christ, the word of God, the Bible, into our hearts to dwell in us in a rich, full way, is we teach. Now that can be done actively or passively, right? We can actively teach. Could do what I'm doing now, right? This formal classroom sort of setting. But most of us, I think, are called to do it more of in an informal way 
teach each other, say to teach our kids, say to teach ourselves in a certain sense by reading the scripture and and seeking Christian books to illumine the scriptures to us, meeting for Bible studies and discussing what what the scriptures say. These are all kinds of ways that we can get the word of God into us. And then in the passive sense, we we get the word of God to dwell on us richly by coming to Sunday school, for one thing, as we study the word together here, or by coming to worship and hearing the preaching of the word and hearing the reading of the word. Of course, in the worship service this morning, right, we're going to hear Pastor Adam, I think he's preaching from the Gospel of John again uh, in his series. I think it's now starting up again. <clears throat> no, it started last week, never mind. During the Christmas break, it kind of, you know, series get interrupted and stuff, so I forget what we're doing. But yeah, we're in the Gospel of John now. And then Sunday evenings. Sunday evenings is First Samuel, a totally different sermon series. And I love that. I love beginning the Sabbath with worship and hearing the word and then coming in the evenings and ending the Sabbath with more worship and more preaching. It's incredible. It's amazing. I love it. And especially from two different genres of scripture. I get to fill my mind with the Gospel of John in the morning worship service and then I get to fill my mind with First Samuel in the evening, a historical book totally different genre of scripture, totally different series as we continue to work through it. It's amazing. I love doing that. So this is Paul's advice here, how we get the word of God to dwell in us, teaching. And I'm sort of reading between the lines here and saying this is an active and a passive teaching. Actively, as we teach each other, as we teach our children, as we teach ourselves, and passively, as we listen to the teaching of Men that God has raised up to teach us, our pastors, our church leaders, etc. So that's one way that we get the word to dwell in us. We need people of the word. We need to figure out every possible way we can get the Bible into our minds on a regular basis. And then the second thing he says is admonishing one another in all wisdom. Admonishing one another in all wisdom. I think the easiest way to um, receive admonishing from someone is in a church service when you hear the pastor admonishing you from the pulpit, saying, listen, Christians, we need to be better at this. Listen, Christians, we need to be better at this. That's admonishing from a brother to a brother or sister. That's admonishing, saying, listen, I don't think your life is aligning quite right with what the scriptures teach on this point. But notice what Paul says here, admonish in all wisdom. As we don't want to run around and, st- and just you know, be super judgmental and pointing fingers at everyone saying, you're not practicing the Sabbath the way you should be, or you're not doing this and that the way you should be. No, there's wisdom here, much wisdom here. But this is one way that we get the word of God into our minds. Aside from just hearing the content taught, we actually are challenged by other Christians to say, hey, are you sure you're living out this command of God in the way that you ought to be. That's admonishment. We need to be open to this kind of thing. Sometimes we get really defensive if someone says, oh, I don't think you're living that the way you should be. You're like, oh, no, I, I am. You're being a legalist. Well, maybe not. Maybe we're just not living out God's law the way we should be. Okay, so these are ways we get the word of God into our hearts. Teaching and admonishing. We hear the word, we read the word, we take it in in every way we can. 
So be people of the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, Paul gives us more advice than just teaching and admonishing. Because the second half of verse 16 says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So technically this is one sentence, but I'm dividing it here into two points. Because we are people of the word, as we hear it taught, as we teach it to one another, as we admonish one another, we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly by doing these things of teaching and admonishing, but also the word of Christ dwells in us richly by singing songs. Songs. And Paul lists for us explicitly what he's talking about. He doesn't just say songs in general. He says specifically psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And notice the first thing he's saying there. How do we get the word of God to dwell in us richly? Aside from teaching and admonishing, hey, sing psalms. Sing psalms. You ever wonder why some very, very conservative Presbyterians want to push for singing psalms? It's because we have explicit commands to do this in the scripture. This is important. Singing the psalms is important. Um, The Puritans, again, going back to the Puritans again, because I've got that on my mind from that class last week. The Puritans were very passionate about singing psalms. Some of them were exclusive psalm singers, saying you can't sing any man-made songs, you can only sing psalms. And I think that might be taken a little far, but we do have commands in Scripture to sing the psalms. Now, in, in the history of the church, Christians used to sing a lot of psalms. They were very prevalent in the medieval church, very prevalent in the post-Reformation era of Protestantism. Very prevalent in early colonial America. People were singing the psalms left and right. But if you haven't, I don't know if you've noticed, but most churches today don't sing any psalms. Now we do here at Pearl. I'm glad we do. We, we sing psalms in the, in the evening service on Sundays. But most churches don't do any psalm singing. Now, let me just ask you real quickly. Does... Anyone know, like, why don't more churches sing psalms today? They're not as easy to sing as the psalms. Okay, they're not as easy to sing, right? They don't have electric guitars accompanying them usually? No, but... No, just the cadence of it just doesn't seem to Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, the, the psalms were not written for the tunes we're familiar with yeah. in our 21st century context. Yeah, that's right. That's a, that's a good reason. I do think that in our evening service, we, our, uh, our Psalter is a, does a good job of taking the psalms and putting them to tunes that we are familiar with. You know, which I really appreciate. That's really fun. That's right. You still got to juggle the words a little bit. But uh, they try. So what other reasons? Why are the psalms, even not just singing them, but the psalms in terms of reading them on a daily basis and implementing them in the Christian life and teaching them, or sermon series on the psalms, like you just don't see that kind of thing very much anymore. Anyone have any other suggestions as to why they've just kind of disappeared largely in the Christian context, other than on a Hallmark card or something? I think our natural tendency is to do things our own way instead of doing things that God's clearly commanded. Yeah. So just plain disobedience. So like, I, yeah, I like my Chris not, Tomlin not songs better. Not and encouraging it, and then oftentimes we find in our own lives, hey, I like doing things this way. you know. And then when we back up and always ask ourselves, um, 
do I have support from this for scripture? Even though it feels mm -hmm. good, it, I feel like I have much more of an emotional attachment um, to this. Is it what's commanded? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think that, um, just piggybacking off of that, one of the reasons why the Psalms have been sort of pushed to the side in our own Christian context today in the majority of evangelical churches is because the Psalms are very, very deep and profound. They are not shallow. If you go on the radio and you listen to typical Christian songs right now, the meaning of the songs is very, very simple and it can be grasped instantly. You don't really have to think about it. They're very simple, very straightforward. Even the tunes and the melodies are simple and straightforward. They're shallow in that sense. Now, they might have good theology, but they're shallow in terms of how they express it because it's so simply expressed. It's not deep. It doesn't take meditation and thinking in order to understand what's being said. And that is, you know, that's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, I think, why the Psalms have been sort of pushed aside in our own Christian culture. Because in the Psalms, the Psalms are taking advantage of a style of literature called poetry. Right? That's what the Psalms are. They are poetry. And my goodness, in America, in our pragmatic, utilitarian sort of culture, we just don't have a place for poetry. You talk to this upcoming generation of millennials and whatever other generation after that, guess what classes they don't like the most in school? It's, it's usually poetry and literature classes. Yeah, see, I've got nods over here from these people. That's right. It's usually poetry and literature classes, right? Now, I know that poetry and literature is not everyone's thing, right? But it's a problem when it becomes nobody's thing, right? Because what poetry and literature does is it causes you to slow down and think very carefully about what the author is saying. In poetry, every word matters. Every line matters. Every thought matters. Every word placement matters. And you have to think carefully about what's being said. It's not just shallow and on the surface. And frankly, as Americans, we are intellectually lazy. We don't like to carefully think about things. We want it just stated plainly. Just say it like it is. Don't make me think about it. Because we're pragmatic. We want to get on to the next thing. What the Psalms do is they force us to slow down and think carefully about them. And when we don't, when we try to speed read through the book of Psalms and our read through the Bible in a year plan, we don't get much out of it. Because they're not meant for that. They're meant to be meditated on slowly and carefully. They're not Hallmark cards. They're not shallow that's one reason why they've been sort of kicked out. Um, and of course, like we've already said, another reason I head down is that the Psalms are um, very much not driven by entertainment. The Psalms are meant to be thought carefully through. They're not meant to entertain us. And that's what a lot of Christian music is meant to do these days. Now again, I'm not, you know, throwing Christian music under the bus. All right, There's nothing evil about contemporary music or whatever. But I'm just saying, God wrote us a hymn book with 150 songs in it that we call the Psalms. And if we're not taking advantage of that psalm book, especially when we have explicit commands in Scripture to do, I think that's tragic. So I encourage you, come to the evening service and sing the Psalms with us. All right, It's awesome. We get to sing God's Word back to Him. 
And in that way, we get to do what Paul is, is encouraging and exhorting us to do here, to get the word of Christ to dwell in us, not simply by hearing teaching, not simply by admonishing one another, but also by singing God's word back to him. It's very important. That's right. It's God's inspired word. You can't get much better than singing psalms or singing songs that God himself wrote. You know, there's no better songs than those. We've got to take the time to, to sing them, get them in our hearts, digest them, meditate on them, and understand them. All right, so that's the first thing, singing psalms. But Paul doesn't say we can only sing psalms. Right? I'm not an exclusive psalmist. I think singing psalms is important. But Paul doesn't say that's the only thing we sing. He lists here hymns and spiritual songs. These are songs, this, this category here that he lists, these are simply songs that we as Christians can write ourselves. It's like preaching. It's like creeds and confessions. We're taking the word of God and transposing it into our own words and then singing it. There's nothing evil or wrong about that. But notice Paul emphasizes here the spiritual songs. He doesn't just say hymns and songs. He says spiritual songs. And what he means by that is that the songs that we sing in our worship ought not to be fluffy. They ought not to be heretical. They ought not to be shallow. They ought to be deep and profound and accurately articulate the truths of sacred scripture. They need to be spiritual songs. And we need to watch those. We need to watch our songs and make sure that they fall under this kind of category and that they're not just teaching heresy or teaching fluff. So we, so we get Christ's word in our heart by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then as we finish up here, because we're out of time, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is sort of Paul's catch-all here at the end. He's like, I don't have time to list for you everything that Christians ought to do. But what I can tell you as a general principle is this. In whatever you do, do it all in the name of Christ. That is, do it all for his glory and do it knowing that we as Christians are Christ's ambassadors. We are his representatives on this earth. And an unbelieving world is watching us. They're watching us to say, and, and that what they're saying in their mind, even if they don't even realize it, is they're saying, hey, Christ must be like that person that I'm watching. When they look at us, we want them to see Christ. We want them to see what Christ is like. We want them to see what a holy God is like. Now, we'll never do that perfectly. That's a huge bar, right? That's a, that's a huge responsibility. We'll never do that. But we are his representatives. And when people see us, we want them to see through us and see Christ instead. That's our task, as we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words you inspired your apostle to write. Lord, um, pray that you would help us to do what Paul says here. Lord, help us not to see this as, as sort of an annoying duty. Lord, make us passionate to do this. Help us to delight in your law. Help us to delight to do your will. Help us to delight to be holy people. Help us to delight to dwell in your word through teaching and admonishing and 
Help us to delight in singing your word back to you and in singing the hymns and the spiritual songs that your people have written throughout the ages. Lord, help us to love this kind of thing. Make us passionate to do everything in your name as we represent you here on earth. Lord, work in the hearts of the people around us, those unbelievers around us, that they might see you through us and that you would get the glory for all of that. And Lord, please, as we think about what we ought to do as your people, help us to see your gospel in all of this and to remember it and to keep it at the forefront of our minds, lest we think that our holy living is what's going to save us or that we somehow earn merit in your sight for these things. Lord, all of the works that we do are done through your spirit. And so we ask you now to send your spirit so that he might accomplish these things in us. Pray that we would give you the glory for all that we do. Pray now that you would bless our time this morning as we enter into your worship and prepare us now to hear the preaching of your word. In your holy and precious name, we pray, amen.